Hi, this is Dave Summers, and welcome to AMA Edgewise. Anne-Marie Knott is professor of strategy at Washington University, where her principal area of research is innovation. Her work has been published in Harvard Business Review, Management Science, Organization Science, and Strategic Management Journal, among others. Prior to receiving her Ph.D. from UCLA, Professor Knott was a project engineer and program manager at Hughes Aircraft Company. And some of the anecdotes actually from there figure, I think, prominently in the book. So great stuff there. And she was responsible for developing missile guidance systems. And she's written a really interesting book entitled How Innovation Really Works, Using the Trillion Dollar R&D Fix to Drive Growth. Okay, I'm quickly going (laughs) to throw up my little filter of just consider me Joe Bag of Donuts, okay? (laughs) Joe Sixpack, who has a question about what's in the book. And I appreciate you being aware and sensitive to my uh, lack of a PhD or even a master's degree. So... Welcome to AMA Edgewise. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. This is a great book. It's so fascinating to me. Many times when I talk to people about the the books they've written, the book itself is amazing. But almost more interesting to me is the backstory of the book. What is the backstory on why you wrote this book? Well, first of all, I wanted to reach people other than PhDs, (laughs) which is why I'm doing a book. But the backstory actually pertains to my prior career. So I was working inside Hughes. We were a marvelous company, pushing the knowledge frontier. That's actually the way I viewed my job, doing that rather than building weapons. And I was upset when General Motors bought us because they changed the company from one where it was driven by ideas and a vision of doing the right things and profits will follow to one that was actually managed by the numbers. And I could see that the changes that they were making were going to be detrimental to R&D capability. But the problem at the time is I couldn't demonstrate that because there was no good measure of R&D capability. So what has happened since is uh, I stumbled upon a measure, the RQ measure, as a byproduct of doing some other research, and I discovered that was the holy grail. This is what I would have needed to demonstrate that there was a problem. And it turns out that the problem wasn't just at Hughes, it was economy-wide. I learned that there'd been a 65% decline in R&D productivity, and I wanted to understand why. And once I'd understood why, I wanted to make sure firms could start fixing the problem. And that's Mm -hmm. why I did book as opposed to just continue to do the academic things. Can you give us the nuggetized version of what RQ means? Sure. The intuition behind RQ is that it's the company equivalent of individual IQ. So individuals, high IQ individuals will solve more problems per minute and companies with high RQ will develop more innovation or dollars from their innovation per dollar of R&D. It has a very specific technical meeting. Would you like me to go through that? Yeah. Oh, sure. Okay. So it's rooted in economics. So the very specific definition of RQ is that it's the output elasticity of R&D, which is a mouthful. That will mean something to economists. But for everybody else, the way to think about it is that it's the percentage increase in revenues that you'll get from a 1% increase in R&D. Okay. So if you increase your R&D 10%, you would increase your revenues 1.5% if your RQ was 0.15. What were some of the big surprises you stumbled across while you were conducting the associated research for the book? So the 
first surprise, well, let me back up. The first thing I did when I came up with this measure is I estimated it for all publicly traded companies going back 47 years. So when you have that kind of data, the first thing you do is just play with it. And when I did that, what I found is that there had been a 65% decline in R&D capability. So it wasn't just Hughes that was deteriorating. It was the entire set of firms who do R&D in the country. So that was surprise number one. The second thing that I did, almost on a lark, was I plotted the RQ decline against GDP growth, and they lined up. So <laughs> I went, this is astounding. If this is true, then this is actually the means to restore it, you know, solving the stagnant growth problem. And the third thing that I did was, once I understood that there was this decline, I, I wanted to understand what were things that companies were doing differently that would contribute to the decline. And of all the things that I looked at, the biggest surprise was outsourced R&D. So, no kidding. Yeah. So there was a 2,050% increase in outsourced R&D. And I said, well, that's a great candidate. I couldn't, see, I couldn't find any other trend as dramatic as the 65% decline. So I estimated, you know, what's... What's the RQ of outsourced R&D versus the RQ of internal R&D? And I found out outsourced R&D has an elasticity or an RQ of zero, meaning a dollar of outsourced oh R&D generates no increases in your revenue. And I'm kind of curious, the process that you went through, in order to generate our RQ calculations across whatever, Fortune 500 companies or Dow Jones or something like that, is that something that's extractable from their, their annual reports and their quarterly statements, that exactly. type of thing? Yes, yes. That's the beauty of RQ is you can estimate it for any company as long as you can get a hold of some basic financial information about them. In tried and true Mythbusters fashion, <laughs> you pony up in the book seven huge misconceptions that even today, I would argue, they occupy major frontal lobe real estate in the business media. We hear about these you know, tropes almost over and over and over again. And so many people have bought into them. Why was it important for you to knock these down and say, no, they're wrong? <laughs> Actually, that wasn't the way I started. All I wanted to do was take some basic theories and test them. And so the seven chapters basically lay on top of mm -hmm. the seven things I was able to investigate, the, mm -hmm. you know, from a theoretical standpoint. They just happened to be things that were major prescriptions for innovation. So the fun thing for me is that, well, that I think the decline stems in part from the fact that, that these prescriptions were out there. Right. <laughs> so, so, I mean, this is a pretty dramatic decline. So the prescriptions were fueling it. And the problem with the prescriptions is if you don't have a measure to test their efficacy, then they can propagate Sure. Ad infinitum. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna read off this list. I love I love the list. Uh, misconception number one: small companies are more innovative. Misconception number two: uncontested markets are good for innovation. Misconception number three: spending more on R and D increases innovation. Misconception number four: companies need more radical innovation. Misconception number five: open innovation turbocharges R and D. Misconception number six, R&D needs to be more relevant. And misconception number seven, Wall Street rewards innovation. And again, I could pick up any blog, any Wall Street journal and say, well, yes, you know, that's all everybody talks about. So it's interesting that you would say, not the case. Now, most listeners to this program might assume that innovation and 
R&D, research and development, are, are, are far more significant in product-based businesses. How does your thinking apply or does it apply and carry, carry forward on service-based offerings? So to the extent that service companies do R&D, it carries over perfectly. So for example, three of the RQ50 firms are Amazon, Alphabet, eBay, none of whom are product companies or essentially service companies. Alphabet being the Google, Google mm-hmm. another word for the Google umbrella kind of company. What makes these companies you just mentioned, what, what makes them, do you think, the behavior, the R&D behavior makes them percolate to the, you know, on that list and to the upper part of that list? So that's an interesting question, and I just got it, and it stumped me because I can't actually characterize what sure. all of these firms have in common. Of course. That was my starting point when I saw these, when I saw the RQs. I said, let me just see what's different between the high RQ companies and the low RQ companies by qualitatively looking at what they do differently. And what I found that was actually pretty exciting is that they all do something very different from one another. So there wasn't anything I could distill from them other than things like, for these companies, R&D appears to be part of the circulatory system as opposed to an appendage. But some very exciting companies that are in the RQ50 are a medicines company. I'll tell you their strategy if you think we have some time. Dolby, a fabulously inventive company with an, a corporate strategy that's inimitable. And in essence, all of these firms in the RQ50 are inimitable. Mm-hmm. So Distilling what sets them apart is not helpful for most firms. So they're doing this type of thing in their own unique way. Yes. So let me give you an example yes, of medicines please. company. So I love this company, and they, my phone was lighting up last week because they, they were in the news for a number of reasons. But what this company does is they're PhD biochemists who understand the pharma industry. The founders came from the pharmaceutical industry. They look at the FDA trials of drugs And they look in particular at the ones that have failed. And they know enough about the therapeutics to say that this drug failed not because of the underlying science, but because of the design of the trial itself. Hmm. And so what they do is they buy these drugs basically for pennies on the dollar, the patents for these drugs for pennies on the dollar, because everybody thinks that they have no future. And then they redesign the trial. So it's basically a recycling company. Hmm. <laughs> and they're tremendously effective. And when I talked to the, the CEO, he says, I'm really surprised that we're in the RQ50, because I don't think that we actually do R&D that well. So humility, as a, in addition to the fact that they have this tremendous strategy. I'm, I'm often struck by And I see it again and again. And it's this sort of love-hate relationship that Wall Street has with Amazon, okay? Okay. Mm -hmm. And Mr. Bezos. And it's this, it's for the future, building out for the future. All this money and all these profits. Great to have you stockholders on board. I'll get to you eventually. But it's, I'm churning money back into sort of this endless cycle of build-out. You know, and is that one of the things that makes them, it just part of their culture, you know, baked in? Well, Mr. Bezos has a tremendous strategy, and he recognizes that the right thing to do is to be pumping all this money back, because this is the best use of of his stockholders' money, is to actually grow out the company. They're a fabulous company. You think of them as being the retailer, but their R&D is exciting because it's making the supply chain much more efficient. Mm -hmm. And they are so large that they're isn't anybody that they can outsource things to. They have, they're on the frontier of delivery. Right. 
And I'm actually hearing something as of this morning. I was aware of it this month, but heading into it even more and more lately, this idea of uh, bulk of Internet searches, or fully half of the, the organic Internet searches conducted this year will be done through a verbal interface, you know, a la Alexa, where you will ask your AI on your phone or in your home to look something up. Or it's astounding. To, it's amazing to me. And a huge chunk of that, I just read recently, as of like this morning, a huge piece of that are millennials using like an Alexa or Amazon type of interface. The other thing with Amazon I think is neat is that a lot of people don't talk about it is their Amazon Web Services, you know, which is this incredible global internet infrastructure that anyone can go out and kind of buy space in their on their server farms or on their backbone or something like that universities other companies whatever and it's not just for delivering a customer service but it literally is their cpus their their computers their infrastructure is riding on amazon's computer system that's exactly why they're exciting is because they're developing this technology that needs to be cutting edge because they need it and then once they develop that technology they make it available to other people because they are on the frontier okay now here's my here's my outsider joe bag of donuts question how, <laughs> how, I'm sorry, and i apologize in advance how much math or statistical knowledge does a reader of this book really need to have i mean in order to appreciate what you're presenting i'm hoping they don't need any I like to think of RQ as the equivalent of wins above replacement in baseball. So, so what you like to do is you like to understand the intuition behind it. Those who are geeks like me have all the math that they can right. dig into. All and you fa fantasy baseball fans out there, <laughs> <right>. pay attention. <laughs> yeah, you can dig into the math in Chapter 10 because the math is beautiful. It does a lot of things that wins above replacement doesn't do. So if you know the company's RQ, you can find out their optimal level of R&D spending. You can figure out how the change in R&D increases their profits and their market value. Now, you can't do that with wins above replacement. But, yes, Quite simply, you can read chapters one through eight without having to know any math and just know that if you want to dig into the math, it's in chapter 10. But after you get done with the book, there will be a quiz. So, <laughs> exactly. Little academic humor there. Sorry about that. <laughs> this is interesting stuff. You have to check out this book. Again, the, the title of it is How Innovation Really Works, Using the Trillion Dollar R&D Fix to Drive Growth. And we've been speaking to the author, Anne-Marie Knott. Anne-Marie is a great book, and, and good luck with your mission. I think stuff like this is a real game changer if the right people are paying attention. Thank you so much for the opportunity to let them pay attention. Follow American Management Association on Twitter to learn more about upcoming free programs, the latest news, management insights, and special offers. You can follow us at A-M-A-N-E-T. That's A-M-A-N-E-T. Hope to tweet to you real soon. We take feedback very seriously here at the AMA. If you get a minute, you have some thoughts about this program or additional questions, just send an email to us at podcasts at amanet.org. 